love stories. <clears throat> I love stories. I think we all do. We, from, the very, uh, from the very time we were little, we loved uh, our parents, our grandparents, reading a storybook, telling us stories. I can remember sitting around uh, the kitchen table with my brother and sister and my grandmother, getting out the little Whitman uh, uh, storybooks and reading those over and over uh, to us. My dad, sitting us on his lap and and reading stories out of a storybook, and those, those just bring up all kinds of memories to me, memories that I wanted to share with my boys, and so I read them uh, the same exact stories from the same exact book over and over again. I want to read one to you, uh, because I want you to find in the middle of this story that my dad used to read to me, a treasure. I want you to see the treasure in this poem written by Ogden Nash, and it's entitled Custard the Dragon. Custard the dragon. Belinda lived in a little white house with a little black kitten and a little gray mouse and a little yellow dog and a little red wagon and a Rulio Trulio little pet dragon. Now the name of the little black kitten was Ink and the little gray mouse she called her Blink. And the little yellow dog was sharp as mustard, but the dragon was a coward, so she called him Custard. Custard the dragon had big sharp teeth and spikes on top of him and scales underneath. Mouth like a fireplace, chimney for a nose, and Rulio Trulio daggers on his toes. Belinda was as brave as a barrel full of bears, and Ink and Blink chased lions down the stairs. Mustard was as brave as a tiger in a rage, but Custard cried for a nice safe cage. Belinda tickled him. She tickled him unmerciful. Ink and Blink and Mustard, they rudely called him Percival. They all sat laughing in the little red wagon at the Rulio Trulio cowardly dragon. Belinda giggled till she shook the house, and Blink said, Weak, which is giggling for a mouse. Ink and Mustard rudely asked his age when Custard cried for a nice safe cage. Suddenly, suddenly, they heard a nasty sound, and Mustard growled, and they all looked around. Meowch, cried Ink, and ooh, cried Belinda, for there was a pirate standing in the window. Pistol in his left hand, pistol in his right, and in his teeth a cutlass bright. His beard was black, one leg was wood. It was clear that the pirate meant no good. Belinda paled and she cried, help, help! But Mustard fled with a terrible yelp. Ink trickled down to the bottom of the household, and the little mouse blinked strategically mousehold. But up jumped Custard, snorting like an engine, clashing his tail like irons in a dungeon. With a clatter and a clank and a jangling squirm, he went at the pirate like a robin at a worm. The pirate gaped at Belinda's dragon and gulped some glog, grog from his pocket flagon. He fired two bullets, and they didn't hit, and mustard gobbled him every bit. Belinda embraced him. Mustard licked him. No one mourned for his pirate victim. Ink and blink and glee to gyrate around the dragon that ate the pirate. Belinda still lives in a little white house with her little black kitten and her little gray mouse and her little yellow dog and her little red wagon and her Rulio Trulio little pet dragon. Belinda is as brave as a barrel full of bears and ink and blink chase lions down the stairs. Mustard is as brave as a tiger in a rage, but Custard keeps crying for a nice safe cage. Well, this, as I remember growing up, was the story of courage and bravery. 
It's a story of a dragon who didn't understand about himself until it was time for him to believe the truth that he really, truly, really, oh, truly, oh, was courageous and brave. We tell ourselves stories, don't we? Some of the stories that we tell ourselves are truths about ourselves, things that God wants us to believe about ourselves. But we also always, uh, oftentimes tell ourselves stories that are not true. Or we listen to stories that are lies about who we truly, really, or truly are. Our story, however, within the context of God's story, intersects with him. It's the gospel story. It's the good news. And it's been the same story since the very beginning of time. So we'll start there. We'll start this series at the beginning. And I want you to understand that the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, shapes the way that we read and understand all of the scripture after it. So we can't pass up Genesis 1 very quickly. It's not just a simple story that we learned on flannel graph in Sunday school when we were little. It's so much more than that. So let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's move into chapter 2 for just a couple verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it... He rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, before we get into this text, I want to pause a moment and give you a couple thoughts to the start. First of all, I just want you to understand that as we have been going through the series Ancient Ink, uh, this, and even before that for me, it's been just kind of a personal wrestling for me with the text. And I hope that it's been for you, because that's part of God's journey for us as we learn and as we grow in him. It's been a challenge for me as I submit myself to the Holy Spirit. In times, there have been old foundations and thought that have shaken and new building blocks have been put into place in my life. It's been a humbling experience for me and in some ways, in very many ways, some disconcerting. Much of what Sam has been leading us through in the last several weeks during the series Ancient Inc. have helped me to walk through this time, trusting God's story and faithfulness. Let today be a day where we apply some of those teachings, the things that we have learned as we understand the text better. Secondly, uh, much of what I will share with you has been taken uh, from the teachings of Marty Solomon, who is the president of Impact Campus Ministries, of which I am a part of. I want to give him credit and respect for guiding much of my thoughts that I want to share with you today about not only the text of Genesis, but in handling the scripture within the context of when and why it was written and taught. 
And if you'd like to hear podcasts and look at some of the teachings, you can look, up, look it up at BemaDiscipleship.com. It's B-E-M-A Discipleship.com. And with that being said, I want to encourage us all to trust this story. And um, I feel like uh, going into this story today, especially during first service, uh, I rushed through a lot. And so what I want to do is intentionally pause at the beginning here, or maybe we're in the middle, (laughs) and pray. Can I do that? Father, we take a breath and we pause. We pause, Father, because we know that we aren't experts in anything, and yet uh, you have given us what you have and guided us with your Holy Spirit to take this adventure, take this journey, and learn more about who you are and about who we are, about your great love for us, about the way that you have designed us, and as sin has entered into the world, how you are restoring relationship to us with you. And so, Father, we pause in humility And we ask, Father, that you would guide us, that you would teach us, and that you would just consume us with your love. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Genesis 1, God begins his story. It all starts right here. And in his story, he has hidden a treasure that he longs for each of us to find. But to get to this treasure... There are some things that we must understand about the very nature of this story, this text of Genesis 1, and really, even in the following text, all first 11 chapters of Genesis follow somewhat of the same pattern. But in Genesis 1, the first thing that I want to communicate with you, and you saw a little bit of that in the video ahead of time, that Genesis 1 is not a science lab report. It is not about the order and timing of the way things were created. That wasn't the intent of the writer, and that wasn't the intent of God when he gave us this truth. And what's important for us to remember is that when you ask questions of the text that it does not intend, you always get the wrong answer. So we need to ask the right questions. Scripture is much more profound than a lab report, and that should give us a tremendous amount of encouragement. We must let the text be what it is. And that's part of our job here, is to dig into it and find out what is the truth of this text. Because it's not a science lab before, it doesn't mean that we throw it out. It means that we dig into it deeper, and we find out what God's truth is for us in it. Secondly, in Genesis, we meet this God, our God, who is named Elohim in Hebrew. And the a few characteristics about this God that we find in Genesis chapter 1. First of all, we find that he is creator. He is creator. He's, he also is spirit, a spirit that hovers over the waters and breathes life into its creation. And he is also word. And God said, and God spoke. And this Elohim does several things within this text. This God, this Elohim, separates light from darkness in day one. 
He separates water from sky in day two. He separates land from sea in day three. In day four, he fills the, he fills the light and the darkness, the heavens with the sun and the moon and the stars. In day five, he fills the water and the sky with the birds and the fish. On day six, he fills the land with animals and man. And on day seven, he rests. But the next thing that I want us to see in Genesis chapter one is this is not just facts. This is literature. This is, this is music. This is a poem. And I just want to remind us that the scriptures, particularly of the Old Testament, were written from an Eastern mindset. They were written by Jewish culture. And that communicates through stories and through pictures, which is difficult for us because we usually come at literature we some to oftentimes have come at the scriptures through a Western mindset. And that's very difficult because then we don't see necessarily what the truth is there. We just want the facts. But that's not enough. That's not complete. We have to be able to understand this as we read because this will help us to understand what is being communicated. So if this is a poem, we want to look for patterns, right? Much like that poem that I read at the very beginning there were some patterns that were over and over again, and that helps me to remember that poem. I can almost recite it to you from memory because my dad read it over and over again. And in the Genesis account, it was like that for many of us, I think. We've read that. We've heard it over and over again. And so what do we find? We find some patterns, right? What refrains do we see or hear over and over again through the text? There was evening, and there was morning the first day. There was evening, and there was morning the second day. There was evening, and there was morning the third day. And over and over again we see this. We also see that as God has created some, all of these things, as he separates and as he fills, what does he say about his creation? It was good. Ten times in the text we see that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And about mankind, he says, and God saw that it was very good. And that's important for us to understand. And then over and over again, we see God saying, God said, God spoke, refrain after refrain. And there's probably so much more. We see this God, this Elohim, creating and resting. The second thing, and, and I'm going to introduce maybe a, very, uh, a, a new word for you for all of us, that Eastern people in their poem, in their literature, they would oftentimes use a concept called chiasm to point out the central message, the treasure that you and I are looking for this morning that they, that they want the reader and the listener to find. It is a tool that Easterners use to paint this picture. True learning, the idea behind us is that true learning doesn't happen from the transfer of information. True learning comes from discovering new truth. In other words, we're engaging in the text rather than just looking at it so that we can get answers to, to answer on the quiz or the test. No, it's something that we engage with our whole being. And somewhere in the story is a point that the writer wants us to discover, and that's why it's important for us to understand chiasm because it's a treasure hunt. Now, I don't want us to get caught up in the weeds with this, but bear with me for just a little bit. There are two types of chiasms, and if you want to go ahead and move 
uh, to the next slide so we can kind of see. Um, I'm going to advance a couple more. Let's start right there. Perfect, perfect. There are two types of chiasm. One, it's one chiasm that we see in ancient literature, in Jewish literature, is a parallelism. It's an A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And what I mean by that is that the things that are being communicated, there is, there is an opposite parallel coming later on. And we see that in the text. But let me ask you some questions. Let's look at a couple of problems in the text so that, we can help, that, that it will help us to define what this chiasm is. First problem is, when does God create the sun, moon, and stars? Day four. I, I should have told you there should have been a quiz. There's a quiz. So remember what you... You can look back at the text if you want, if you've got that in, in front of you. But on day four, God creates the sun, moon, and the stars. For what reason? To identify the day and the time and the seasons and the year. This is, I mean, and this is the way that the ancient people would look and say, okay, it's, the sun has come up, as, and we know that it's not that actually the world rotates on its axis, but it looks like the sun is coming up in the sky. It must be day. And then if the moon is out, what, what time of the day must it be? Night, right? That, yep, that's, that's for sure. We understand that. That's the science of it all. On day four, God creates the sun, moon, and the stars. And yet, on day one, two, and three, we see that there is what? There is evening and there is morning. Well, how do you know if it's evening if the moon hasn't been created yet? And how do you know it's morning if the sun doesn't come up in the sky? Follow along just for a little bit. Day three, there's another problem we see in day three. On day three, God creates what? creates the plants. But if you know anything about science and photosynthesis, without the sun, the plants don't grow, right? It doesn't happen. And so there's something out of whack, something misplaced here that we need to kind of come to terms with and understand. But notice how the days correspond with each other. Earlier I mentioned, and I, and I talked about how in days one, two, and three, God does speak some things into existence, but specifically, he does what? He separates. He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the water from the sky. He separates the land from the sea. And on the next three days, God does something very specific there, too. In his creating, he, uh, into the things that he had created and separated, then he fills it. So on day one, when he separates the light from the darkness, on day four, he fills the light and the darkness with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, when he separates the water from the sky, day five, he fills the water and the sky with what? The birds and the fish. On day three, he separates the land from the sea, but on day six, he fills it, this land, with animals and mankind. Following along? Are you, are you following? I'm not sure that I do, but uh, it, 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 actually it really does. It's, it's a parallel. One corresponds with, day one corresponds with day four, day two corresponds with day five, day three corresponds with day six. That's the poetic structure, part of the poetic structure of Genesis 1. Also, you're going to see a different chiasm and that's the ABC CBA or the mirror. 
And if you have the NIV text in front of you, you can almost see it exactly like that because the NIV will actually put the text into paragraphs. So on day one, you have a little paragraph. And on day two, you have a little bit larger of a paragraph. And on day three, you have a larger paragraph. And when you see this in the Hebrew text, you can see it even more clearly. But we don't read Hebrew, so we can't understand that. But you can catch a glimpse of what happens. There's a little bit that's communicated, and we're going to call that a baby paragraph on day one. On day two, there's a little bit more that is communicated about day two, and we're going to call that a mommy paragraph. And on day three, there's a whole lot that is communicated about day three, and we're going to call that a daddy paragraph. Are you following along? On day four, that paragraph looks very much the same as day three, so we're going to call that a daddy paragraph. On day five, it's a little bit smaller. It's like day two, and so we're going to call that a mommy paragraph. And on day six, oh, we got a problem. We have a problem. Because if you take that text and you just read all the way up till man is created, we, we have a baby paragraph, but God does something in this poem. He inserts something very special. It sticks out like a sore thumb in the text or a protrusion in the text because on day six, God creates something very unique and special. What does he create? Mankind. And he wants to highlight that for us. But literally, if you take those two, two, if you take it and between day one, two, and three, and day four, five, and six, and you fold it up on itself, you find a mirror. It's a, a chiasm. So Genesis 1 actually has both chiasms in it. Now, if you've been following along here and trying to understand the poetry that is happening here, your mind is probably, I, I, I don't get it. I, I think, Lowell, you're smoking something this morning. So let me point out just a couple more things and then get to the treasure. If this is a poem, much like uh, the custard, the cowardly dragon, you're going to see bookends at the end and the beginning and the end of this poem. And if this is a poem, then you're going to see a book at the bookends, aren't you? In day, in day one, God speaks the world into existence out of what? It says that God created the heavens and the earth, and they were formless and void, which is what? Nothing. It's nothing. Out, and we know that, that God created out of nothing everything. It doesn't make sense scientifically, but this is what the text says. He creates out of nothing the earth. Go all the way to the end of the text. In Genesis chapter 2, the first couple of verses on day 7, we see that God does, does what on day 7? He doesn't create anything. He does what? He rests. When you rest, what do you do? What do you do? You, you do nothing. That's what you're supposed to do if you're resting well. You're not doing anything. We have nothing at the beginning. We have nothing at the end. These are the bookends of our poem. Now, if you had the Hebrew text and you fold up the chiasm like it should fold up this poem and you count backwards and forwards into the middle of the text, you find the treasure. And the treasure that we will find is the word in Hebrew, moad. Moad. Moad is translated by the NIV, sacred times. 
or sometimes you see seasons. It is also the Hebrew word, one of the four Hebrew words that is used for the word uh, Sabbath. Sabbath, we've heard of that before, haven't we? Moad is the same Hebrew word God uses to describe his feasts. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that they celebrate the Passover. And they also celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the First Fruits, Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and they are required to observe weekly Sabbaths, or Shabbat. Say Shabbat with me. I'm going to use that word in just a little bit. All of them are called his appointed times. So in the very center of this text, we find the treasure. We find the treasure that we've been looking for, and while we've gone to all of these pains to try to figure out what it is, we find the word moad, which means sacred times. It is the treasure. If you look at verse 14 once more, and we'll read that. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark moad, sacred times and days and years. So the question that I have to ask myself at the end of this message is, why is Moad my treasure? What do we find in Moad, in seasons and in Sabbaths and in sacred times that are as important to me? And I want for us to understand that God's story begins with Shabbat, Sabbath. So let me ask you this question. Why would that be important? Well, who hears this story for the very first time? Who hears this story for the very first time? It's not Adam and Eve. The people that hear this story for the first time are the Israelites who have come out of slavery in, in Egypt. Because Moses is the one, if we attribute Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to, at le- to mostly to be Moses, at least communicating these stories, whether he's written them down or not, he's communicating these stories that he received from God to this brand new Israelite nation who have come up out of Egypt, who were in slavery for 430 years. And what did they do while they were in slavery in Egypt? Does anybody remember what they did? What was their task? These slaves were charged with making bricks. For 430 years, for the pharaohs of Egypt, they worked and they slaved at hard labor to make bricks for, the, for this pharaoh god. And as a slave... Egypt has told you that your value and your worth is about how many bricks you make. Every day, from sunup to sundown, if you can't produce bricks, you can't provide for your family. You have no worth. Think about that for a minute. If you can't make bricks, you can't provide for your family, you have no worth. Does that sound vaguely familiar to any of you during stressful times in your life? So, God's very first lesson as this Israelite nation are coming up out of Egypt, out of slavery, where they have been for 430 years, all that they have known, his very first lesson to them is, I need you to stop. I need you to take a break. I need you to Shabbat. Say that one more time with me, Shabbat. I want you to understand this, because I think God wants us to understand this. First of all, in Shabbat, we find that God's creation is good. 
God's creation is good. We saw that over and over again within the text, that God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God said that it was good. What is creation's fundamental essence? It is that God created things good, not broken, not broken. The problem with the Christian gospel, as we know it, or at least maybe the way that we have been communicated for years and years, is that we start too late in the text. We start with brokenness. And even in the church, we have done this. We talk about our brokenness and our sinful nature and all of these things. And while that, it, there is some truth to that, we can't focus on that. That happens too late in the text. The very first part of God's story and God's gospel to us is that we are good. God's, God's story does not start with sin. That happens in Genesis chapter 3. What happens there? Sin enters the story. It is an intruder into God's good story. And that's where we find brokenness. If I start the gospel story at Genesis 1, it tells me what I am, that I am very good. But if I start the gospel story in Genesis 3, it tells me what I am not. It tells me that I'm a failure. The kingdom of God starts with Genesis 1. And the rest of the scriptures then are a story about God's desire to have restoration for the creation that he loves. Shabbat, we find that creation is good. The second thing that it leads me to is that in Shabbat, we find our true identity. The created, we are created in the image of our creator. My identity, your identity, is not attached to my ability to produce, to make bricks. That's not what, who I am. I don't identify myself as a person who produces anything. Egypt tells you that your value is, worth, is only worth and how many bricks you can produce. But my story, your story, starts in Genesis 1. My value is not found in what I produce, but in who I am. And we all too often listen to a different story in our lives. The story we tell ourselves is that we are broken, that we are not enough, that we are not loved. But in Shabbat, it is time to stop and remind yourself. Remember I told you about the other festivals where the Moad describes not only Sabbath, but the Passover. As an example, it's a good example because Easter is coming up. And in Easter, we tell the story about God's redemption of mankind. We tell that every year as a reminder to ourselves of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that he has restored relationship with us. In the Jewish culture, they celebrate Passover every year, and they do a Seder meal. And the family comes together, and the head of the family tells the story. And they have been telling the same story for thousands and thousands of years as a reminder to the Israelites that your identity is found in God who created you good and his desire was to rescue you out of the slavery that you're in. They stop, they Shabbat, to remind, remind themselves about God's truth. We need to stop. We need to know how to stop. We need to be reminded of the story because if we're not, we will forget and that's when we start the ugly spiral into brokenness. Lastly, in Shabbat, we find the very presence of God. And in God, he wants us to rest. He wants us not just to have physical rest, but also spiritual rest as well. 
And in day seven, God rests from his work and he enjoys his creation, much like an artist who has painted a beautiful painting. And he could take one more brushstroke on this painting. He could do a little bit more over here, a little bit more over there. But he steps back and he looks and he says, that's good. It's not perfect because the story is still being written. But I want to step back and look at this good creation and be present in it to enjoy it. And God calls us to that same Shabbat, that same Sabbath, to step back and to rest and enjoy God's presence in our lives. There's this refrain that's over and over again. And every day we see it. On day one, there was evening and morning. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with our day beginning and evening? It's not the way, it's reverse. Or that's what we thought, Randy. We think that that's what it's supposed to be because this is the way we've been doing it forever. We start our day when the sun comes up and the alarm rings and I hit the snooze button five times. That's the beginning of my day. But in Genesis, at the very beginning, the day starts in the evening when the sun goes down. In fact, in Jewish culture today, as it has been for thousands of years, the day starts in the evening. So what I get to do at the beginning of my day in Jewish culture is to do what? Go to bed. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I mean, there have been many mornings that I've woke up and I thought, boy, I wish I could go back to bed. But if the beginning of your day starts with rest rather than work, think about how that changes your heart and your mindset that God speaks to you and says, first, I want you to know about me. I want you to rest. And out of that rest, I will give you strength. I will give you resources. I will give you everything that you need to do so that you can work. And that's opposite of the culture we've been living in. I think there are many of us probably have come here this morning because we haven't rested in a long time and we're tired not just physically tired, but drained emotionally, mentally, spiritually, because we haven't taken the time to stop. God's economy is based on God's good creation. And this is so relevant for our culture. Our culture is so wound up in the Egyptian narrative that says, I'm not skinny enough. I don't look good enough. I need to impress the people around me. I I don't have the right degree. I don't have enough money. And we have become slaves to a system of brick-making over and over again. God says, you need to know how to stop. You need to join me in celebrating a good creation. God says, I feel the same way about you that I feel about all of creation. And it is good. So God invites you and I to trust the story. Where my worth and my value is not found in what I do or what I lack, it is found in the good creation that God created you and I to be. And in that creation, he loves us. He loves us. So stop and listen to the truth of God's love. Close your eyes for a little bit. Don't cross your feet in front of you or on your lap. Just put them down flat on the floor and put your hands on your knees. 
And breathe in deep breaths through your nose. And out from your mouth. Breathe in. And breathe out. Don't be afraid. This is not some new age meditation. We're just doing some natural things that we were created to do. Breathe in. Breathe out. That was about 15 seconds, folks. When was the last time that you just breathed in and you breathed out? The very beginning of the story, my friends, is that God wants you to live in his rest and to hear his voice that says, I love you. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your good, good story. A story that says we are good. A story that reminds us to stop. A story that reminds us how important it is to listen to your truth. Remind us, Father. Remind us, and, and as we live in community with one another, as the family of God, remind us. Help us to be a reminder to one another to stop and to rest. Thank you for your treasure revealed to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.